Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Chris Moeller. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Cassie podcast. So Chris, tell everyone how we know each other and then tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So Cassie, I think we met with some of my exploration in DAO organizations, right? I'm a trustee of Octant DAO, which is kind of a cool concept of the future of living, so to speak. And I think we're introduced by Dee Morrissey, who is a connection of ours together on LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn is such a great way to meet a lot of people, especially people who are interested in blockchain, Web3, DAOs. And it's a very vibrant, open, gracious community, I think, don't you? Yeah, I do. It's amazing because I know that you can see people's history and sort of track your neural network back, right? Which is what got me so so interested in what you were working on because I think our common overlap was 2004, 2005 when I was building out eDiscovery doc review facilities around the country and you were just starting to dive into eDiscovery yourself. It's not common for me to run into people who know about eDiscovery. And so knowing that you're in this different space, but have that prior experience at eDiscovery, of course, it got me very, very excited. But we're not here to talk about eDiscovery, and we're not even really here to talk about DAOs today. Chris, you and I had a conversation on LinkedIn about a new announced UK law that has to do with Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and then that turned into a broader conversation of inscription. So that's really the focus of our conversation today is blockchain, cryptocurrencies, encryptions, and then what all that means. So why don't you get started on that? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's a huge week, right? The Financial Services and Markets Act in the UK came through and I guess King Charles didn't take him very long, did it? Here, a few months into his into his service, and they've amended the Financial Services and Markets Act, and uh, now they've got some regulation around cryptography and in cryptocurrencies. I think you know it's an interesting dynamic between what we're seeing in the U.S., which we won't get into that too much here, but I do again want to get into the whole discussion around inscriptions, which is. Related to the Bitcoin blockchain, I've recorded kind of a legal hot take on this really short, a minute, a minute and a half, quick overview of inscriptions. But why don't you maybe give a quick overview yourself of what that really means to our audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm certainly not a blockchain programmer and I'm not extremely technical, but my understanding continues to sort of evolve especially since the taproot, which happened, I guess, you know, maybe about a year ago, which was a soft work, and it allowed for additional utility on the blockchain outside of currency. And it starts to open itself to additional utility like smart contracts and NFTs that were not previously part of the Bitcoin blockchain. Right, because the Bitcoin blockchain is really 
the first really heavily used blockchain out there. And it was made specifically or built specifically for cryptocurrencies. And please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the Taproot upgrade allowed for more data to be saved in one of the fields that are available in in that that ledger, that immutable ledger. And so really what that did is open the opportunity since more data could be saved in that field, more text could be saved, images and even videos could be saved there, right? That's right. In short, some of the highlights of the Taproot, just to be to to try to keep it as simple as possible, it the first thing it did was it allowed for additional signatures. So multi-sig. So if you and I and one other person owned or had a contract together, it allows for what they call Schnorr signatures, which is this signing off on consensus, right? So that's one thing that the that the Taproot did. The second thing it did was the privacy and transaction fees. So there's the second part is called SegWit, which is part of the Taproot that allows for lower transaction fees and better privacy. And the the final thing is their scripting language. So they're sort of started their own scripting language called TapScript, which is now their programming language inside of the Taproot inside of Bitcoin. So I'll try to keep that as simple as I, as concise as I can. <laughs> we all come at this with different levels of experience and d- different levels of tech technological knowledge. So um, I think that was a pretty good overview. And I, I think it's worth even commenting and saying, we often talk about blockchain generally, but there are different blockchains, Bitcoin, of course, being one of them. And then there's the Ethereum blockchain, which came after Bitcoin and the founders of that blockchain decided they wanted to add some functionality to that blockchain, which has really been the catalyst for the permissions that allow NFTs and digital assets to be associated with blockchain technology. And that's something that wasn't present on Bitcoin's blockchain until, again, this taproot upgrade and the ability to save save more on there. Now, I know I've observed just from watching the LinkedIn discourse, there seems to be a bit of a, I don't want to say divide, but differing opinions in the Bitcoin maxi, those people that are hardcore, hardcore Bitcoin people. Some people don't want the ability to save text or images, which maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Those technically are called inscriptions, correct, Chris? So instead, they're not referring to them as NFTs. They're referring to them as inscriptions on the Bitcoin. There are some Bitcoin maxis who think, I don't want that on my blockchain. I want to keep it cryptocurrency. Bitcoin was founded as a cryptocurrency focused blockchain. I don't want to muddy the waters. I don't want to compromise this blockchain. And then there are some other people who are kind of like free market, let the blockchain be what it will be. So have you observed the same thing too, Chris? I I have. You know, the dev community for BTC, for Bitcoin, they, uh, because it's decentralized, even the dev community has decentralized decision-making, almost 90% of the dev community was in favor of the taproot. And what it did solve, whether or not TBD as far as long-term, was it solved gas prices, right? It solved the fees associated with ETH and and how many different bridges there have become to layer two, right? So 
I think it keeps the one thing, the benefit that I've seen so far in BTC through past this taproot is that it keeps it on chain without having to go to a second chain. So there, that's the privacy piece and that's the security piece. Ethereum has just a whole host of other features and benefits post-merge, right? So once they, once they moved forward with their merge and created that layer two, that started to solve for compute power and that started to solve for gas fees and transaction fees. But that's really where the two, I think, sort of equalized, where now Ethereum doesn't have scarcity, right? Bitcoin, Bitcoin has scarcity. So in terms of it being a currency, it's really not. It's more of an asset or a store of value or a commodity. Whereas Ethereum, because they can continue to print more, ETH is really more of a currency. And I think it's even worth clarifying that Ethereum has NFTs, so non-fungible tokens, and you raised a good point about Bitcoin's inscriptions being on-chain, meaning the text or the image, that asset associated with that entry on the ledger is on the chain, meaning it's immutable, it's never going away. Now, Ethereum NFTs, some are on the chain. I believe Nouns is one example where the underlying art that's associated with that ledger entry is on the chain, but many aren't. And so what you have is in essence IFPS, IPFS. I always get that the wrong way. An IPFS Mm -hmm. link or URL link. Mm -hmm. Um, And what it is, it's a relational value or a pointer to the artwork on another system. So it's not on chain. And you hear a lot of people saying they would re- they want an on-chain NFT because there's more value. And why? There's a potential that 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 link could rot, right? Link rot is a real thing. So the value of having the asset on the chain itself is is a huge thing. And so I guess that's the the beauty of Bitcoin in, inscriptions is there's no flexibility there if you're going to have an asset like that on Bitcoin, it's going to be on the chain, right? That's the that's it, exactly. Provenance, right? Or or ordinals. That's what got me into, you know, the investment around the first sort of inscription project, which was actually done by Yuga Labs, who is really a, a huge proponent of Ethereum. Yuga Labs came through and hired an artist named Figgy and a project called Twelvefold. And that project is an NFT project. It's a progressive NFT project, but it's sort of the first one on Satoshi's, which is the inscription. Satoshi is the smallest unit of measure. So it's the penny to the dollar, so to speak. So on on the Satoshi's, there's a mathematical inscription process that allows for multiple rights, so to speak, read rights, and even transfers on that Satoshi called inscriptions. So to your point, if you're looking for provenance or you're looking to be able to prove ordinal proof, then it's on-chain in a Satoshi as an inscription. Now, you may not know the answer to this, but the question just popped into my brain. What's the difference between an inscription and an ordinal? Is the inscription just the act of applying that text or image to the ledger or the Satoshi, or is it and then the ordinal is kind of the equivalent of an NFT, or is that just clearly defined? Yeah, this is where I get a little bit hazy, but it, it the the ordinal is the NFT, and the NFT is on the Satoshi, and the inscriptions are on the on the Satoshi. So <clears throat> your NFT would really be 
ordinal, it would point to the Satoshi, and then the Satoshi would have sort of the dynamic programming associated with chain of custody. And I know we've talked about images, but uh, my understanding is that you can also create, in essence, a Bitcoin wallet or a Bitcoin domain, similar to what we've seen with Ethereum with, with an ENS, but you can do it with Bitcoin now, correct? That's right. And that's really evolving now because before Bitcoin was really a currency, right? And people were just sort of minting and using decentralized exchange to acquire and you know, maybe they would do a cold storage wallet on a Trezor or however they would store it off of an exchange in a, in a, in a wallet. But now what we're seeing are Bitcoin specific wallets that are plugging in for that ecosystem. Going back to the art or, or the text, when I heard about ordinals for the first time, of course, I wanted to go and see what they looked like. And they're actually ordinal browsers where it's URL web-based, trad web2 based website where you can go and see the ordinals and you can have them sorted by first in time or last in time. And I'll try to pull uh, a link to that and, and include it in the podcast notes because I'm just the nerd where I'll spend 30 minutes scrolling through just to see what's there. And uh, it's very interesting. The first ordinals were very, were memey, you know, I think that there was a lot of just playing around and seeing what was there, maybe a recipe. I'm pretty sure I saw like a pasta recipe. Again, lots of memes. Pepe was, was very present. But recently, if I look at the most recent inscribed ordinals, they, they tend to be text-based. So it makes me think that they must be those wallets that are being set up. But I just would love to hear, have you taken any time to kind of scroll around and see just casually what's on there? And do you have any thoughts or comments about that? Yeah, you know, I think it's digital artifacts, right? I think it's kind of people out exploring and sort of staking their staking their flag or staking their claim. I did this with, with Ethereum at the very beginning. I went out and got the company name OrionGrowth.eth because I wanted ENS registry. You know, it's similar to the 90s when everybody was moving into the crazed URL world and buying and selling URLs. No one really knows its speculative value. So I think what we're seeing really on, on Bitcoin now on Satoshis and inscriptions really of people experimenting and just creating digital artifacts. And to your point, maybe it doesn't have much value yet because it's grandma's cookie recipe. But at the same time, <laughs> Your grandma's cookie recipe the first time it was ever put on chain in a Satoshi as an inscription, it's got a really kind of a neat story for us nerds, right? So maybe the value is just deferred. and We just don't understand that marketplace yet because there hasn't been an exchange for that yet. Right. And I've even, you know, around Valentine's Day, I was wondering, does does a holiday like that prompt people to want to write something on an immutable ledger that will never go away as, as a way to, instead of putting a lock on a bridge in Europe somewhere, they're going to say, you know, I love Cassie forever. If my husband, he would never do that, but because he doesn't <laughs> like any of this stuff. He's a Luddite. And there actually were people, you know, you can go and, and do some searching on, on the actual Bitcoin Ethereum scan too for, for the Ethereum blockchain. And it's just kind of interesting and fun to see what, what people put on there. So, so maybe it's a way that people just kind of want to put a stake in the sand and say, I'm saying for time immemorial, this immutable ledger, I'm putting 
my my declaration of love with this person. So, I mean, that's one potential use for it. I mean, I feel like that would be a great Valentine, a Bitcoin Valentine Day card. Of course, some Bitcoin maxis may not like that idea, but there is potential utility to that. Totally. Yeah. And I think I think really, if we want to take a deep dive into the society or the social side of this post post pandemic, if you look at ordinal theory, it's really about time. Right. And you and I started before we were talking about anxiety and the world that we sort of have grown into now with AI and how we feel like we're behind. This is all ordinal theory. It's all about time, not money. So it's where in place you are. That's ordinal. Cardinal is the value, right? One, one, two, three versus first, second, third. And I think what we're what we're seeing is we're starting to see the transformation, at least in the decentralized world of blockchain technology and the metaverse. If we're going open source, then it really is about time uh, over over money at this point, because we're creating a new economy that might have deferred value of market value or exchange, right? Whereas I think a lot of the other blockchains, call them private blockchains or personal interest blockchains are really going to be walled gardens that will have severability and the ability to be, you know, sort of sold and bought and sold. Whereas this, you can't, it's decentralized, it's truly decentralized and immutable, right? I think we're talking about time and value and benefit more than we're talking about revenue, profit and value. It's like the ultimate tattoo, right? There's no... There's no fixing that tattoo. Once it's on the Bitcoin blockchain, it's there. You're not you're you're not changing it. Which brings up another issue. Being an attorney, a lot of times I I look at new technology and consider the risk there. There's no gatekeeper to what gets put on the Bitcoin blockchain. There could be some bad actors who could put PII or PHI on the blockchain and, and what's the remedy for a GDPR mechanism to be forgotten. I mean, one thing that I saw on there, I saw pictures of babies on there. What's the mechanism of remedy for that? Is it, will it be up to the the, the trad browsers to maybe filter them out? I, I don't know. I think these are all questions that we've got to deal with in some way. And I don't think a lot of privacy attorneys may be aware of this or know this is out there, but it's definitely something we need to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, I think that this, the Centralized validation, right? So there's it's there is no central validation. There's no centralized validator for for on the Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin blockchain. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is is the concept of self-sovereign identification, right? Where we have to create wallets that house our identity, right? In real life, we've got passports, the administrative documentation, identification that's housed in a centralized authority that proves you are who you are. Self-sovereign identification is the opposite, right? It's you choosing to connect to the website or you choosing to connect to the world. I think that it's interesting to, to think of it differently that way, whereas it, with a website in Web 2, you are asked for a username and a password. In Web 3, they're asking if you would like to present your information. So it's the opposite. And I think that that's kind of an interesting concept in and of itself, where you can choose to show up or not show up. And if you're there, your identity is there with you, to whichever extent you've chosen to disclose. Yeah, and I think that that's an interesting dynamic of Web3, and it's a a very compelling one for many people as data about ourselves as users online. There's a lot of value to that and a lot of people wanting access to it. and 
the potential and the hope, I think, of Web3 is to give people the ability to control their own data themselves. Whether or not that will be fully realized or not, I don't know. I think it's it's very, again, an interesting dynamic. And I think over the next five years or so, I personally think wallet use needs to more people need to understand wallets and what that can do, not just a small set of people, but the potential is definitely there, Chris. Yeah, I think so. Now, there's a there's a quote there I want to share with you that I read um, by Aiden Herbert. And I think he, I, I don't know if you guys are connected, but I saw this on LinkedIn. Self-sovereign ID is user control over chain of custody between identifier and root of trust. And I found that to be very interesting because it's just something so very different than username and password with metadata, right? There is no, this is the opposite of what we're doing now where we're allowing tracking, we're allowing our phones to, all the terms of use that we've we've given up so much of our own identity by becoming the, the product. Whereas I think some of the decentralized version of this is no, we're, we're not giving up anything but what we said we're going to give up. And that's really just this part of my identity and this part of my identity, not all of me. Right. And again, I feel like it's a very compelling and I think, again, it's a very hopeful idea to, to get control over that. Definitely, if you, if if any of our listeners don't know anything about self-sovereign identity or decentralized ID, it's definitely worth looking into because there are many builders out there in the Web3 and blockchain community that are very, very focused on moving moving that discourse forward. Getting back to ordinals and Bitcoin one huge value that it brings to the table, not only where we exist in a given point of time, and, and this is part of that, is authentication. And I think that we're seeing more and more the use of blockchain technology to address provenance, address counterfeiting, address authenticity. would love to hear your thoughts on that, Chris. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Actually, I have IP <laughs> on some of that, what I call total tenancy. And the idea behind total tenancy, right, is just that it's authentication and where and how do you authenticate and for what purpose? You know, what's interesting, especially with my research on distributed work, you know, I was in commercial real estate building out office places and places of of activity-based design like eDiscovery, Doc Review Centers, as an example. Well, now we have distributed workplace, right? So whereas all of those controls and measures and compliance were happening on premise, now it's we have distributed teams. So how does that work, right? Whereas before we had controls and measures in real life because we were on premise, how do those controls and measures work when we're distributed? And I think the authentication protocol and the whole concept behind authentication really needs to find a spot on a distributed ledger, somehow be hashed and anonymized into microtransactions because when you really triangulate the data of somebody, if you're trying to authenticate their themselves or their work, it's very, very invasive. You, we've seen that in some of these kind of Murdoch trials, right? The, te- the technology around metadata and being able to use geospatial data like Google Maps and then triangulate that with times of texts. And it's just amazing. It's the same thing when you are out here in this metaverse world, there are ways to triangulate in that same way through authentication. So to be to be determined, thankfully, there's only about 1% of a total addressable market out there in the world, in the metaverse world. And 
with 7.9 billion people on the planet, I think we're going to see there's going to have to be some form of authentication. I just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, we definitely are living in the age of metadata is the new DNA. You, you can't, you know, IoT and IoT or Internet of Things was something that was a very trending topic in the e-discovery space, maybe five or six years ago. And people don't talk about it nearly as much. And I think it's just because it, it's so ubiquitous now. It's so present in our daily lives. We don't even think about it too much. But <clears throat> good luck getting away with a crime these days if you have a phone or even the fact of, oh, my goodness, my phone was off for two hours. Whew. Yeah, sorry, you can't get anything. I mean, that in and of itself is going to be seen as suspicious activity. I think that that leads into or drives maybe some of the tension and maybe some of the interest in decentralized ID. But but a wallet, you know, again, your wallet, your your ID, that's on a public ledger. And I think there are bad actors out there that maybe early on using Bitcoin or blockchain technology didn't really think ahead of it being a public immutable ledger. And that activity can be traced anywhere. I feel like blockchain technology sometimes gets a rap of, of being scammy. And I, I'm a firm believer scammers are going to scam regardless of the technology, the, the scamming activity is going to be there. But at least for the most part, you can really track where that money goes with with uh, blockchain, with cryptocurrency. It's an interesting dynamic, that's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even when you take it to simplest form, sort of IRL real right now, just looking at even exchange events inside of traditional communication inside of a project for accountability. You've spent a lot of time disseminating data and figuring out relevance, right? So it's it's like inside of those exchange events, how do we hold people accountable? That can just be for fault or for risk or for compliance, but that project all lives inside of itself, right? So it's what's interesting is when you take something that's in a controlled environment like that and decentralize it and make it open source, how do you then let, put it back in the bottle, so to speak, once it's been, once Pandora's out? Yeah, exactly. So I want to go back to the conversation of authentication and the value that blockchain technology allows for in that space and kind of compare that to the trending topic everybody wants to talk about, generative AI right now. And there's a lot of extreme views. It's going to save the world. It's going to ruin the world. I'm a very practical person. Generative AI is not perfect. It's not a magic wand. But what it does have is scalability, and there is the potential for a lot of misinformation, a lot of bad information to go out there. I posted yesterday on LinkedIn <clears throat> about how huge online markets or, or large online trad to markets that maybe sell books online, ebooks, there's a deluge of AI created books that are just junk. And what it's doing is it's creating a lot of noise on the market. And we're going to have a lot of noise as far as information, maybe junky articles written out there. And I personally see Bitcoin as a tool that can be used or Ethereum, a blockchain technology, an NFT being a method by which we authenticate that this is human authored content. And, and maybe that's not the fix because you could still do the same thing with generative AI, but you know, the downside to generative AI, if it's used for that purpose, is of scale and whether or not someone would pay to get it 
NFT or ordinal to, to validate it is a question. Have you seen any conversations about that or do you have any thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, yes. Um, and to your point, it's <clears throat> a lot of noise, right? So it's, it's as, the, as you understand, the USPTO doesn't recognize something as intellectual property if it's been generated artificially. That's the question of that interstitial space between virtual and, and real. In real life, it has to be created by a real human being. It has to be human made to be considered authenticated, right? Whereas in the virtual world, how do we how do we how do we deal with that, right? Because it goes back to time. If if you have it staked and you can prove provenance and it's ordinal and you were really truly the first and you could prove it, a year from now or two years from now or three years from now when the discovery process gets better, will we be able to actually authenticate and validate that that was the first time that idea or that concept came up? It's something new that we just can't touch. And it's certainly something that the courts, I don't think, would be able to understand. And maybe even hard for somebody to argue. But it's coming. Like, it's, I think it's the beginning of virtual law, right? Yeah, I think the, the discussion of authentication in courts, I think, is going to be a huge issue. Because people are going to be saying, I, that wasn't me talking. That was deep faked video. Digital forensic experts are going to be very much in demand, I think. And it won't just be videos. It can even be written documents. I, I didn't write that. That was, I used Copilot and the machine wrote most of that. So I think that could be used by some people to strengthen their position that they're trying to come, that they're trying to establish in court. There's a lot of people who don't really understand generative AI very well. And I really hope that we can maybe minimize some of the extreme conversations. My hope is that the the courts will make sure that they have sufficient resources available to them and whether it's a court-appointed neutral or something like that to help kind of be a deputy and help them navigate these these waters of this new world that we're dealing with. We're already seeing courts grapple with briefs that were written by generative AI and made up citations. So I think that was a real watershed moment in the legal community. So it has a lot of attention right now, but that was a very specific example. And I don't know if everyone is really thinking ahead to things like deep fake videos or, or generative AI created written documentation and, and how that will play out in the courts. Yeah, I mean, you know, just look at like jurisdiction, right? Like if you look at decentralized finance, <clears throat> excuse me, the Security Exchange Commission and the and the Treasury's role in currency, how do you regulate a decentralized global currency? How do you create jurisdiction around where the AI or the generative AI or the IP was even created, let alone how it can be enforced. It's almost, to me, it's it, watching all these proceedings associated with the SEC, with the decentralized exchanges and what they're doing, even with some of the ETFs and then watching the UK bring into law regulated cryptocurrency. How do you even, how does the United States anyway, even have jurisdiction over a decentralized currency that's global, right? It's the same with the legal side of it. like. Does the U.S. government even have the ability 
to preside over something that could have been deep faked from a different country. Like, how does that even, how does that even work? I think it just like the, the, the issue will be what's the focus of the discussion. If the focus of the discussion is whether or not this person actually said something, then it just turns on having your, your forensic experts come in and speak on that. It is the wild, wild west. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah, we use that analogy all the time. This is definitely Lewis and Clark. But one of my favorite things in learning about Lewis and Clark's expedition again, um, or relearning that or revisiting that, is that they, it is documented that they thought on the other side of the Mississippi they were going to get mauled by dinosaurs. Um, hmm. And it's pretty amazing to think that, like, you just don't know what you don't know, right? Clearly, wow. they didn't get mauled by dinosaurs, and dinosaurs had gone extinct uh, a lot uh, earlier. <laughs> so it's just interesting. You don't know what you don't know, right? Um, but they made it. They made it out west, and they knew that there was risk, uh, and they had loss of life and casualty. They had there was nothing safe, maybe even about that expedition. But that's what it is. It's an expedition, and People are either curious to it and interested and willing to explore, or they're just going to wait. And it will go from, I think, an adaptation model to an adoption curve. I'm enjoying the journey so far on the adaptation model, and I'll let the world adopt it later, but I'm, I'm having fun flipping over rocks. It's a great time again for builders. It's a great time for, I think... People who are very creative and not necessarily arts creative, but creative as, as far as how they approach solutions to problems. And it's a really, for me, a very exciting time to be an attorney because nothing gets your brain going than all of these unique questions that we may not have dealt with before. As we wind down, Chris, thank you again so much for being a guest. Do you have any closing comment that you would like to share with the audience? Not maybe a comment, but just just to reemphasize where I'm finding the most interest in my exploration of technology. It's really an open source. It's in transparency and immutability. You know, I think that all the AI concerns that are out there, for all the AI concerns that are out there, if they get into the wrong hands, I, I'm seeing the technology that can protect against that. And it really, I think, is open source. And it is transparency and immutability. I think that there's far more value globally for us to explore that open source and decentralized world, lower those barriers to entry, work together. It sounds all soft and squishy, but I really do believe that that's probably those technologies are the ones that are going to protect us from the technologies that get into the wrong hands for artificial intelligence. Ending on a hopeful note, which I, I really like because I, I do think a lot of these conversations are about trying to make the world a better place. And that seems to be the vibe of, of people I talk to. Again, Chris, thank you so much for joining us in this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And join us in our next episode of Cassie and 